You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The Pride Parade is canceled. New York, San Francisco, Chicago. I'll join the list of cities canceling the pride parades. But greed, envy, wrath, sloth, and gluttony were all on parade this weekend in Lansing, Michigan, Denver, Colorado, Austin, Texas, Olympia, Washington. People, mostly white, all dumb, took to the streets to call for the reopening of America. These protests, as the Washington Post reports, are being pushed by pro-gun activists. That's why you saw so many assault rifles in the photos of these protests. Assault rifles, Confederate flags, swastikas, you know, the haters who are in love with death, other people's deaths, not their own deaths. We're all out there humping death's leg this weekend. We'll check back in with them in a couple of weeks to see how that worked out for them. Anyway, I don't want to give these astroturfed protests more attention than they deserve. The numbers of people at this weekend's greed, envy, anger, sloth, and gluttony parades were small because the overwhelming majority of Americans support efforts to flatten the curve and are staying home to protect themselves, their loved ones, and their communities. So instead of turning the entire intro over to these assholes this weekend, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of groups of people that were on my mind this morning. First, to the event of sexuals. I'm thinking of all the people out there who regularly attend big events, sometimes annual events like IML in Chicago or DomCom in LA, the straight swingers who go to big retreats every year, the people whose sex lives revolve around play parties. The more niche a person's sexual interests are, or the more isolated an individual kinkster is, the more important these kinds of events become. Think of the gay leather guy who lives in a small rural town or the swinging straight couple that lives in the suburbs. And while from the outside these events can look like just so much fucking around. I have been to enough of them to know that people get more than sex out of these events. People find community there, community and connection and friendship and intimacy and yes, sex. There are a lot of eventosexuals out there who don't know when they're going to see their friends and lovers again. And we feel for you. Also wanted to give a shout out to another group of people that I've overlooked. We usually run response calls at the end of the show, but this week we're going to make an exception. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to comment on your April 14th show. On the 14th show, you treated us to a long discussion of how much you love using marijuana at home, and then you advised people to put down the Budweiser and pick up the Bud. And Dan, I support your right to get as high as you want, and that's beautiful. But I'm just going to ask you for a little bit of love for the many, many people who listen to your show who have struggled with addiction and who are really, really working hard to stay clean during this pandemic. It's really hard for a lot of us with the isolation. So just if you could just give us a little love, that would be very meaningful. Thank you so much for all you do. Like I said at the top of last week's show, people are drinking, people are using more pot, also watching more porn. We talked about that at the top of the show last week. So long as you're keeping it together, I think if you need a bit more booze or pot right now to get through the day, that's fine. But those of us who are capable of using in moderation and those of us who may be using a little bit more right now, we need to remember the people in our lives who may be struggling to stay sober. We need to show them our love and support and we need to always remember that the ability to use drugs or alcohol in moderation doesn't make anyone morally superior. 
just genetically lucky. We've been encouraging people to reach out, to maintain physical distance while strengthening social connections. And one important way we can be there for our friends who are sober, particularly anyone we know who only recently went into recovery, is to make time for them when we are sober. Very grateful to you, caller, for the reminder and the prompt, because I do want everyone out there who listens to the show, who is sober, however long you've been sober or only recently sober, to know you have our love and support. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining us in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, divorce attorney Lori Lopez Guzzo, here to talk with an individual caller about her case, but also to talk about divorce post COVID lockdown. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a quarantine sex story from Spain. As you know, the situation has been pretty tough here. And I've been really down, stuck in the flat uh, with my partner. And we weren't really having too much sex. In the beginning, we were. And then it kind of fizzled out until... We invented strip ping pong. So we had some ping pong rackets and a ping pong ball and set it up on our dinner table and played like a best out of 15 rounds. And if you win, the other person has to take off one item of clothing. Anyways, it was, it was really fun. I recommend it. Thank you for calling in and sharing your quarantine sex story. We're opening every week's Lovecast for the time being, with people's quarantine sex stories, how you are taking some of this time when you're forced to be at home and turning it into sexy time at home. Give us a call. Share your quarantine sex story. We may open next week's podcast with yours. Hey, Dan. I have a question for you. So every guy I've been with till now is really possessive or wanting me to be the only one um, and for them to be the only one that we sleep with. Um, and this guy I'm seeing now, he's into me being with other dudes and DPing and things like this. And it actually does really turn me on. But I'm just wondering if you have any advice to uh, get into this slowly. Um, yeah, or if you have any thoughts that this means anything for the way he views me or... I guess like there's a fear that he, um, yeah, like doesn't <laughs> see my body as a temple or <laughs> something like this. And there's like fear behind him wanting to share me. So yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the matter. The standard advice when someone is dating a guy who is interested in that person, whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, being with other people, being with other men, is to take it slow, to take baby steps. Well, welcome to the pandemic where you are forced to take it slow, where you can't even take that first baby step for a while, which is going to give you plenty of time to talk about this with your partner and drill down on what it is that turns him on about it. Is he into hot wifing or hot girlfriending? Is it just that he wants to see other guys or know that other guys are enjoying you and it turns him on to know that you turn other guys on too? Is he into cuckolding? Is this an eroticized insecurity where he wants to be degraded or feel humiliated by you being with other guys? The cuckolding play is a little bit more emotionally tricky 
And the reason why we encourage people to take this very slowly is you can't know for sure how you're going to react the first time your partner, if you've only ever been in monogamous relationships in the past, is with someone else. There are plenty of people out there who fantasize about their wives or girlfriends being with other men, really turned on about it. They dirty talk about it. They get their girlfriends or wives on board. Their girlfriends or wives are excited about finally doing it. They do it. And the guy has a meltdown, which is why you don't go – Zero to 60. You don't swing for the fences that first time. So you don't go for full intercourse the first time. You don't go for an overnight the first time. You go out with your boyfriend. Maybe you flirt with other guys in front of him. Let other guys buy you drinks in front of him once we have bars again. And let him see how that feels and check in with him. Maybe you make out with somebody else on a dance floor. Maybe you have a, a hookup with an old flame. And it's there's no intercourse. No oral or vaginal Penetration or anal penetration, you just are going to roll around a little bit, make out, and then your boyfriend is going to watch or does he want to see pictures or does he just want to hear about it? Does he want to be there? Does he not want to be there? There's a lot to discuss before you actually act on this and you have plenty of time to discuss this before you can act on it. And the questions you have, how does he view you? Those are questions that he needs to wrestle with to your satisfaction, answer to your satisfaction, provide you with the assurances that you need. It's not his desire to see you with other people or know that you've been with other people doesn't mean necessarily that he doesn't regard your body as a temple. He just doesn't want to be the only worshiper. So have a long talk with the boyfriend. You have plenty of time to have that talk with the boyfriend about what this means to him and what he wants out of it. Particularly important again to drill down on whether or not he has done this before or if this is going to be not just a new experience for you, but also a new experience for him. And, you know, just on the face of it, when you think about being with a guy who is possessive as the guys that you've been with before have been and maybe jealous and controlling and you contrast that with being with somebody who is seemingly not so possessive, seemingly not so controlling because he wants to share you with other guys. Well, that itself can be a form of possession of owning you and controlling you. If it's about him deciding who it is that you get to be with, if he regards you as his property to share, if he approaches this as if he's lending some other dude his tricked out car and sees you as an object that's going to increase his, I guess, social status because he can share you, that could be problematic. That could be a bad sign. You want to make sure this is coming from a place of abundance and joy, not just a kind of photonegative mirror image possessiveness. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm going to try to make this short. So about a year ago, I hooked up with my best friend and it was right before she got into a serious relationship. And while she was in this relationship, her and I were always very flirty with each other. Backstory, we've known each other forever and ever and have always been very attracted to each other. So uh, about halfway or about half a year into this relationship with this guy, uh, we ended up having a threesome which didn't really go very well. Everyone kind of got some hurt feelings and we all backed off. Since then, her and I had discussed having um, a relationship, you know, alongside of their relationship. She had told me that things with them were open maybe, but had never been very clear about it. And then today she called me, she's quarantining with him and her family and She called me and he was on the phone and we were on FaceTime and he was accusing her of lying about when we hooked up and 
she was trying to get me to answer like when the last time we hooked up was and he was screaming at her and at me and saying things like, why are you trying to fuck my girlfriend? It was crazy and horrible. And I don't know, is there something I need to be doing? Should I just stay out of it? It seems like it's more about what she didn't tell him than what was going on with us. Um, the communication has never been good there. So should I stay out of it or get more involved? Yeah, you're going to want to stay out of this. You're also going to want to encourage your friend to get out of this, to get away from this raging, controlling, jealous, possessive asshole of a boyfriend. I'm sure the threesome was, if not his idea, a proposal that he was psyched about, and it didn't go well. Here you have a case where somebody watches their partner get with somebody else and has this unexpected emotional reaction, a negative reaction. And it sure sounds like ever since the threesome, this guy has been punishing his girlfriend for the threesome that didn't go well, for you know taking out his rage on her and has probably pressed her for information about your relationship with her. Obviously, he's jealous about whatever he witnessed passing between you, whatever electricity or sexual connection, erotic ties there were between you, and he's insecure and controlling and jealous. And he sounds potentially violent. One of the things that we're seeing during this lockdown, as many of us are sheltering in place, distressingly and upsettingly, is a huge spike in domestic violence. And abusers take advantage. They leverage whatever they can in their campaign of abuse, uh, abuse of their their target, their wife or their kids, whoever it is that the abuser or sometimes the husband, whoever it is that the abuser is targeting. And your friend sounds very vulnerable right now. If at this moment when they are trapped at home together, this is what they're doing. They're processing a, a three-way that didn't go perfectly, that didn't go well months ago, however long ago, and getting on the phone and you are – and he is raging at her and screaming at her while you're not quite in the room, but able to see what's going on in the room. Imagine what he's doing when there's no one around. I'm very concerned for your friend. I would encourage you to stay the fuck out of it, out of their drama, whatever's going on between them, but reach out to her, ask her if she's okay. Ask her if it isn't just shouting, if it isn't just verbal abuse, if she feels unsafe, if he's hit her, and then help her, if you can, make a plan to find somewhere else to shelter in place and get away from this motherfucker. And if need be, call the fucking cops. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Out Rescue. Uh, longtime Magnum subscriber, first-time caller here. I'm calling for advice on my mentality with my partner. He and I have been together just shy of two years. For the most part, we have a loving, communicative relationship. I suffer from mental illness, and he's been an amazing support to me with this. His methods of reassurance are thoughtful and kind, and we both actively support each other in our creative goals. I struggle with executive dysfunction, and he often helps me through this, which means since we've been together, I've seen more progress than ever with every goal I've set for myself because he helps me not back down. We rarely argue and have a ton of common interests and a great balance between our relationship and our individual lives. Here's the problem. He works at a popular nightclub in our city and is very attractive. He is constantly being propositioned by women that come through the venue and often indulges text flirting or sometimes one night stands with them. This is not the issue. I'm comfortable with my partner having sexual autonomy. My issue is despite many, many conversations around this and my reassurance that this is not an issue for me, he lies about and hides these interactions. This gives me concerns about sexual health and safety and it's also deeply hurtful and confusing because I've tried very hard to establish an open line of communication around this. 
I never approached the topic with anger, so the refusal to be candid about these experiences in lieu of getting caught makes no sense to me. I learned today that up until right before quarantine, he was still meeting up with some of these women for sex. We don't live together, but he's been staying with me during this time. I plan on confronting this discovery later tonight. It seems clear to me that full disclosure is just not going to be a realistic expectation, and while I plan on digging in to see if we can find out why this is such an issue for him, again, I also intend to surface that I may be able to consent to a DATT agreement to accommodate this behavior, since I feel it's clear he gets something not only out of the sex, but out of hiding it. Am I crazy? Am I letting myself get totally walked all over? Is it possible he genuinely cares for me while acting this way? Another layer to this whole thing is that for whatever reason, this behavior turns me on like nothing else. I love fantasizing about him with other women and we've even played around with other people before, which I was very into. So the avoidance on having this conversation is just mind blowing to me within a dynamic that is otherwise so extremely considerate and supportive. What do I do, Dan? He's hiding things from you that he doesn't need to hide. From you. He's hiding things from you that would turn you on. He has sex with other women. He flirts with other women. Obviously, there's something in that for him. He gets to have sex with these other women. He gets to be pursued. He feels attractive. He feels affirmed. He's having tons of sex. He's getting off. And it's galling to you and angering that there could be something in that for you too. If he told you about it, you would be getting off on it because it turns you on to, to know that he's been with other women. Obviously, the disconnect here, uh, the, the little tiny bit of sexual incompatibility here is you, you say you respect his sexual autonomy and he seemingly needs some privacy. It may be that having a secret uh, and particularly keeping those secrets from you turns him on. Well, keeping the secrets not only deprives you of what would arouse you to know about but angers you because the, the keeping of the secret feels unnecessary to you. But it feels unnecessary to you because the only reason you – see that's rational to, to, to keep the secret would be if you reacted with anger or jealousy or tried to prevent him from sleeping with other women. That's not your desire or intent. Indeed, it turns you on when he's with other women. What you have to recognize is it turns him on not to necessarily keep this from you in particular, but to keep it from everyone to get away with this, to, to, to do these things without everyone knowing about it, to have this zone of not just sexual autonomy, but total privacy. There is a fix. And I've talked about these friends on, uh, on the show before the gay couple where one, you know, liked to sleep around, but it turned him on to have a secret. It turned him on to get away with things and the compromise that they hammered out and it's worked for them. Now they're married. They've been together for years. I've been talking about them on the show for a very long time. Uh, what they worked out was he could, do what he needs to do, fuck around, have his secrets, you know, lie about where he is sometimes, which he was doing so that he could go have an assignation. But then every once in a while, they have a sit down where they have a bottle of champagne and they just spill. He tells his boyfriend everything, uh, now husband, everything. And the now husband jacks off and they roll around and there's something in it for the husband. Maybe that's the compromise that you can work out. You don't need to know every detail, when it's happening, as it's happening, or immediately after it happened. But every once in a while, because this is a turn-on for you to know that he's with other women, and he needs a girlfriend like you, obviously. You're the best possible girlfriend for him. Every once in a while, there needs to be something in all of this for you, and that is a night with him where he tells you some of his dirty stories, shares his sexual adventures with you, allows you to get off hearing about them. You are a cut queen. You are a rare thing. He should be so psyched that he found you without looking for you. 
because you are the ideal potential girlfriend for him, long-term committed partner for him, if he can just move a little bit. If you can both move a little bit. You would like to know everything right away. Obviously, that's not going to happen. He obviously would like to possibly not share anything with you ever. The compromise is you don't know everything right away, but you know most of it every once in a while because you have these share sessions that will be probably intensely erotic for you. And he gets to you know operate with some privacy, with some autonomy in the moment, knowing he's putting these things in a spank bank for you for later. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 29-year-old gay guy calling from the East Coast. With all my extra time being cooped up at home, I've had plenty of extra time to play on my phone a lot. And I have a question for you regarding conversation and picture etiquette on hookup apps. Here's the backstory. A few months ago, I was in a group with three other guys. We all have a nice time, but we haven't met up since. One of the guys messaged me last night just to say hi, and then the topic of our group came up. He said that he wished that he and I had more time together, one-on-one, and he asked if I found him attractive or would want to do it again. I said that I definitely had fun, but was thrown off because he looked different from the pictures he presented. He pressed what I meant and asked for the specifics, and I eventually said that he was thinner in the pictures he sent than he was in real life. He definitely did not like that comment, and we proceeded to get into a longer discussion. He eventually pressed that I was being fat phobic and a, quote, typical white gay with one model of queerness. He said that his pictures were sent because they were the ones that he felt best in, and I shouldn't make myself a victim because I perceived him to be different from what his real-life self was. The crux of my argument to him was that it wasn't the type of disparity I noticed, but the fact that there was one in the first place. I said that honestly portraying ourselves was really important in hookups because it adds to the comfort level for everybody. I said the picture could have been 10 years old, a picture with him with braces, or a brand new shaved head. Um, And I also brought up the fact that there were other larger guys in the group when we all hooked up. To be honest, I actually co-signed everything he said about negative body image and fat phobia with gay men. I agreed with them, and I told him that. Um, but towards the end, I felt like we were having two different conversations, and he wasn't understanding my point. Was I an asshole for bringing up the specific difference I saw in his pictures in the first place? Or did I have a right to feel weird about the discrepancy between his body and his pictures that he sent in regards to his size? So he felt best in the photos or best about the photos that made him look slimmer than he actually is right now. And you're the fat phobic one or the only fat phobic one on the call. Isn't he demonstrating a kind of fat phobia there by preferring the pictures that misrepresent his body type? I would say, yeah, yeah. I would say that he's buying into the very, you know, gay fat phobic shit that he's complaining to you about. And you didn't say that you didn't find him attractive and there were other bigger guys at this group sex event that you attended, that you played with, that you found attractive. It wasn't about his size. It was about the fact that he was being a little manipulative and dishonest. He was misrepresenting himself and that made you uncomfortable. And he pressed you on what that misrepresentation was and pressed you and you told him. And so, no, I don't think you're being fat phobic. I do know that fat phobia is a problem out there in the gay community. I've been accused of it myself. There's a new study out that finds that there's a lot of fat phobia, of course, in gay land that sloshes around. Gay men have eating disorders, uh, bigorexia, anorexia, bulimia at rates similar uh, to women because gay men are sex objects who are viewed by men. We're subjected to that hypercritical male gaze too and that competitiveness. It's even magnified in uh, – gay male sex culture and communities. But I don't think this is an example of it. What your issue with him was, was the dishonesty. 
And that made you uncomfortable. And you were less attracted to him, not because he was larger. There were other larger guys at this event that you were attracted to that you spent more time with than you spent with him. He saw you interacting sexually with other bigger guys. You were less attracted to him, not because he's a bigger guy, but because he's a guy who basically lied to you with a photograph. And that made you uncomfortable. And he doesn't want to take responsibility for his own actions. He wants to shift the conversation to your bad character and accuse you of being a fat foe, which you are not. Spend not one more minute wringing your hands about this. You barely know this guy. You don't have to see him again. And you don't owe him anything. You don't particularly owe him crawling up there on that cross. Crawl down. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the at-risk youth. I am a 30-year-old straight cis woman calling from the Middle East. I am married and in a monogamous relationship. I have a two-part question. First, my vibrator broke last night. It's a rabbit. I typically like to lay on my stomach and lift my hips a little bit by laying on a pillow or a rolled up blanket and use my vibrator while my husband penetrates me from behind either with his penis or digitally. I can typically orgasm in this position. I have a rabbit vibrator and a wand, but I don't care for the bulkiness of either. Both hurt my hands so badly from the weight of both my husband and I, but I have to hold them in place on my clit to climax. It also hurts my pelvic bone if we have sex more than once a day. We typically finish in this position because it's the easiest way for me to climax. Do you know of or any of your callers know of a flat, maybe tongue-shaped vibrator that I could grind on? My second question is that while I can always come in that position, I used to be able to come without my vibrator in many different positions, and now I have a hard time coming no matter what. I subscribe to OMG Yes after listening to your podcast, and I try many of the different techniques, solo and partnered, and I can get incredibly turned on. I know that the mission of sex shouldn't always be to come, but to enjoy the ride, but I miss my earth-shattering frequent orgasms. I thought women in their 30s were supposed to have higher sex drives and better orgasms. Dan, please help. I'm glad you subscribed to OMG. Yes, and there's a lot of terrific information there and a lot of terrific advice there. And I would encourage you to keep falling down that particular rabbit hole. You know, sometimes when we discover what really works for us, we default to it. It becomes our go-to and then other things that worked for us too, we neglect and they atrophy. And it's a psychological thing, I think, more than a physical thing where we just know in our heads that this position, this toy guarantees the orgasm and a quicker orgasm. And sometimes that desire to have a quicker orgasm is tied to the input that you're getting from your partner. If your partner's expressing or has expressed or has made you feel self-conscious because they're expressing a kind of impatience for you to get there. If in the other positions, maybe it took a little bit longer that you defaulting to what you know works isn't always just about you. Sometimes it's about your partner and not wanting to exhaust them or not wanting to make demands that you have a right to make on them. My advice for guys often who have this problem, you know, I've talked a lot about death grip syndrome who get in this rut often as teenagers when they begin masturbating, uh, a rut that they remain in once they arrive at partnered sex, they have difficulty climaxing except with their own hand. What I recommend to them is not to stop masturbating but to stop using the hand in that particular low right, to deny them their default setting, their go-to and experiment and mix it up. And if you don't come – I tell this to guys but I tell this to girls too. If you don't come 
without your default, without your go-to, and you're masturbating or rolling around or you're having partnered sex and you don't climax, well, just enjoy the sensations, enjoy the ride, but don't come. You don't get to come. You deny your body that release. You let that energy build. And it's, you know, seems to me, and I've heard from tons of people who've taken this advice and it's all anecdote, not data. I wish somebody would study it more in depth. Seems to me that at some point, some new neural pathway is carved between the genitals and the brain and an orgasm kicks in, becomes possible. Your dick or your pussy gets really so desperate to get off at some point, I hate to anthropomorphize everyone's genitals, at some point your dick goes, okay, I'm not going to get what I've been getting in the past, so I'm going to have to adapt. The problem and the paradox is that it doesn't always work. That Sometimes you mix it up and you try something else and you deny your dick or your pussy what's always worked or your default or your go-to and months and months and months go by, six months. And I encourage people to give it six months, even a year, and it doesn't that new neural pathway is never carved. And at that point, you have to accept this is how my body works. This is what my dick or my pussy requires and I'm going to have to work with it. Because you used to have orgasms in different positions that were chattering and intense before you defaulted to this go-to regularly. And again, I want to ask you if that's a choice you were making for yourself because you wanted to get there and you wanted to get there quickly or if it was a choice you were perhaps subconsciously making to please your partner. Is your partner expressing impatience in the moment? Is he not being as generous and as giving of his time and attention as he should be? But then you should mix it up. You should try different things. You should walk it back and see if those old neural pathways that used to work for you are still there just dormant and you can kick them back into gear. And I would encourage you to try a new position, try those old positions, give it six months or a year. Don't go to this place. But don't go to that particular position with those particular toys. Try other positions, perhaps with other toys. And yeah, if you get on the website of you know early to bed, good vibrations, any of the big, terrific sex shops on there whose online stores are all up and open and they're shipping right now, you can find plenty of flat and even tongue-shaped vibrators with just a little bit of searching. Good luck. Hey, Dan. So a friend of mine in a very, very, very close circle of friends. He's deeply, deeply, deeply closeted. Last night, he started aggressively propositioning me uh, via text, including an unsolicited dick pic. He was hammered. He is clean and sober up until last night. He uh, relapsed. Being very, very aggressive about it. I'm not interested at all. I'm queer, but I'm not interested. I let him down very, very Gently, I tried to, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. Couple issues here. This guy is an ex-cop. He's deeply, deeply involved in politics. This guy is powerful, and I was serious. I was really a little bit scared because this dude could be dangerous, and I actually got a little bit scared. And on a side note, I suddenly, I think maybe. I truly understood what women go through because I've been propositioned by a woman before by men and I was able to laugh it off. But this time, this is fucking scary. So I think I finally got a lot of perspective on that, which I'm grateful for. But with my issue here, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to let this guy down very gently. But the larger issue is what do me and or my friends do. I mean, do, do I just let him sober up 
and let him pretend this never happened? Is it my responsibility to now that he's basically come out to me to have a conversation with him about being in the closet? Because I know he's going to try to act like everything never happened. Or is that just none of my fucking business? I don't know what to do. And I'm still a little bit freaked out. Like, what if this dude does this again? Because he is very powerful and he is dangerous. Hey, I had a question for you. This powerful and dangerous, angry guy, why is he your friend? Why is he embedded in your friend circle? Why do your other friends like this guy? Well, we all are kind of connected because we're all, we're all in, uh, in recovery. We're all, you know, recovering addicts, mm. um, alcoholics, but we're not, um, <laughs> I always feel I need to tell people we're not evangelical about it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. It just, it just doesn't work for us. There's a connection there, maybe not a friendship, but there's been some mutual support uh, that's flowed between all of you guys in, in maintaining your sobriety. So it's a, it's a different yes. kind of connection and relationship. Yes, absolutely. And there's never been any kind of, he's always been, you know, respectful and friendly. So it just, there's never been an issue before. But Billy, add alcohol. There's obviously a yeah, reason why yeah. this guy needs to stay sober. Uh, yes. And yeah, that it's really distressing. And, and what you, you're right to say that you left this experience with some appreciation for what women go through and also what they do. You know, women often are put in a position where they have to reject someone without angering him because they fear how the guy yeah. will react if he is angered by the rejection. And so what you were doing was uh, that de-escalating technique that a lot of women use to extricate themselves from a, a situation where you know, they don't want to have sex with this person. They don't want to consent to sex. They don't want to have to you know, avoid a confrontation, but they also don't want to provoke that person because men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters and are scary and sometimes violent. And women are right to be afraid. And I think in this circumstance, you're right to be afraid of this guy because it's not just that he's hitting on you, but he's also a closet case. And sometimes that closet case, those closet cases, and there were a lot more of them around when I was in my twenties that you would sometimes run across where they want to fuck you, but they hate you because and blame you for the fact that they want to fuck you, that they're yeah. angry at you and they desire you, but you are the, you're the responsible party. It's your attractiveness to making them feel these things that they don't want to feel. And a guy, you know, we used to talk, you know, there used to be a lot of talk in the gay community about guys who would have sex with you and then beat you up. You know, the moment uh -huh. they came and it wasn't a kind of getting beat up that you enjoyed or asked for, it wasn't consensual, it wasn't power play, it was anger and it was really dangerous to sleep sometimes with a conflicted closet case because you didn't know how they were going to react or process it the minute they came and those post-orgasmic regret or regrets washed over them and the implications washed over them once their dicks weren't hard anymore. And it was a dangerous game to play. You know, and I remember friends, you know, 40 years ago when I was a gay teenager who slept with closeted cops and then got beat up by that closeted cop. Jesus. So, you know, you, your question is basically, is it your responsibility to have a convo with him? I think that increases the danger for you. The more you become, okay. you know, the focus of this, not just, you know, someone that he desires, but someone who's confronting him about his desires and making them think about them when he's sober, the likely you are to become a target. You don't have a responsibility to this random, basically, closet case that 
you've come to know for a reason that's not entirely about friendship, although you have formed mm-hmm. a friendship, you aren't responsible for him. And I would, if I were in your position, I would minimize my contact with him while saving that conversation, saving screen grabs of that entire conversation in case he ever accuses you of anything or, you know, okay. blames you, you know, says if there ever is a confrontation, if he ever brings it up, he blames you for hitting on him. You can prove that, no, this was you hitting on me, but it's not a conversation where there's a lot of upsides for you. If this was somebody who wasn't scary, somebody who wasn't dangerous, somebody who wasn't violent, and they were closeted and conflicted and it hit on you and you felt safe drawing them out and having that conversation, that's a mitzvah. That's God's work. And I think, you know, uh-huh. we've all done that. And I think the younger you are as a gay person and the, the more recently you've been out, the likely you are to encounter someone like that who is, you know, still struggling at 22 when you've been out for five years at 22 and they're attracted to you and they hit on you. And then, you know, if you feel safe with that person, you know, often gay people are put in a position where someone is hitting on them who's not out. And sometimes you can have that conversation and you can really help that person accept themselves in part by modeling self-acceptance. But the word that I keep bumping on in your question is do you have a responsibility in this instance? Mm-hmm. You don't have a responsibility particularly in this instance. You don't have a responsibility when you're 22 and you don't feel threatened and you think the guy's a nice guy. You still don't have a responsibility. It's a mitzvah. It's a good deed. It's God's work. Gay God's work. <laughs> but it's not your responsibility. And if you feel in any way that it makes you unsafe or more of a target for his rage to have this conversation with him, don't. You aren't obligated. You do not have responsibility. Okay. I'm sorry this happened. That's, that's um, unple- But you know, in a way, I'm not sorry it happened. I wish men everywhere were sensitized to what women go through. And I think gay men sometimes are more sensitized to it, and, and queer men uh-huh. and gay men more sensitized to it because, you know, we often sleep with other men and we know how men can be and we have to be careful we aren't men like in that way, in that toxic way. And it can really open our eyes, not just to be on the receiving end of that experience, but sometimes to, you know, be hitting on someone and realize, oh, they're using de-escalation techniques with me. They're afraid of me right now. But you have to be sensitive <laughs> right. to it in both directions because there's this game in like queer male land where you want to be like kind of aggressive because that's kind of a turn on. And then that yeah. can also be a trap where you bumble into being aggressive in a way where you're not intending to make someone feel afraid of you, but you are having that effect on someone. And we always have to be sensitive to that to that to that you know yeah. we may be misperceived in that way or no, uh, unaware we're being perceived in that way yeah you know it really made me um it was such an eye-opener like i said in the call i've been hit on many times by men and women that you know i didn't want to reciprocate but um this this yeah it it was i'm almost grateful for it because it kind of was a revelation it did make me start to think about the times where i had you know i had been hitting on someone and they gave me you know the response i wasn't sure how to read because they weren't exactly reciprocating it but they weren't saying no but they weren't saying yes and that's a no that's what has to be our setting our our our, you know that's where we have to go it's if it's not if it's ambiguous, it's a no, because there are a lot of people who uh, give us an ambiguous response because they fear us or they have this conditioned fear response. And it's, it may not be anything we're doing in that moment to make them afraid of us that we're not consciously doing in that moment to make them afraid of us. It just may be their, the, you know, the way they react when someone hits on them, where they have a hard time yeah. saying no, particularly 
women, but also like gay guys I've encountered. And it, it took me some time myself to learn that, you know, if somebody wanted to fuck me, they were usually pretty clear about that. If I asked, True. there wasn't a lot of hemming and hawing, particularly from other men, not a lot of hemming and hawing, True. And, you know, a hem and a haw rejection sucks and we want to avoid it almost at all costs. So we, our egos will to preserve themselves and protect themselves. will interpret a hemming and a hawing as, you know, a maybe and, you know, a potential yes, if I just keep asking or if I ask it a different way or ask right. a thing. And we just, we have to unlearn that and we have to like i talk on the show a lot about embrace rejection rejection is good for us because the sooner someone who doesn't want to be with you rejects you the the sooner you're going to be in bed with someone who wants to be in bed with you and that's going to be much better for everybody particularly the person if they only consented to sex with you to because they feared the consequences that they didn't consent or just wanted to shut you up or just wanted to avoid conflict even if they weren't in fear ah that's never good sex for the person who's consenting under duress or consenting to shut you up. And it's also rarely good sex. And I think it can do damage to the person who's the other person in that interaction. It's not good for anybody. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm sorry this happened Thank to you. Thank you. And it's scary. And protect yourself. And maybe what the one thing that you can do and no responsibility is to reach out to some other people in the in the group who can reach okay. out to him. You know, if you know his okay. sponsor to like nudge his sponsor, maybe he needs a call without mentioning why or what happened. Okay. Don't out him. Right. Right. I, I, I was, I was assuming, you know, I should err on the side of not outing him, but um, just, you've made me feel so validated. And I didn't realize until you were telling me to avoid the conversation, how much it was kind of, carrying me up how, how conflicted i was about it and mm-hmm. um it's a big burden off my shoulders to to hear you say that you're sorry and that it's okay to avoid them yes it is absolutely okay your first responsibility or your only responsibility in this instance is to protect yourself okay good luck okay Hi, I am a woman in her mid-20s, mostly straight. I'm single and I feel like the quarantine and COVID and everything is making me feel so alone, even though I have a great family and great roommates and things like that. But I think I just keep, it, it makes just me feel so lonely seeing other people with their significant others. And I think what I need to hear it's just like there's still time that there this won't last forever and that I still have time to like find somebody and start a family and things like that and that this just won't last forever because right now I just feel like it will go on forever and I've run out of time and I'm not gonna find like a person to spend my life with and it's just over for me. So if there's any reassurance you can give to somebody in my situation, I'd be very grateful. It's odd what I'm about to say. I'm a little self-conscious about it. But you know what I am constantly reassured by? My dining room table. Every day when I sit down and have breakfast and write the savage letter of the day in the middle of the afternoon, I sit at my dining room table. And my dining room table was originally my great-grandparents' dining room table. It's like 120 years old or something. And I got the dining room set. It had become, after my great grandparents 
owned it. It was in their dining room. It was in my grandparents' dining room. Then it was in my parents' dining room. And now it is in my dining room. And the reason this dining room table reassures me every time I sit down at it is because it was in my great-grandparents' dining room in 1918. Because three of my aunts who were very sick, the entire family was very sick, uh, during the Spanish flu epidemic, basically recovered on that table. They were laid out on that table, three of them stacked side by side uh, because there weren't enough beds in the house. Sick relatives had come home and the house was full. And luckily, everybody in my family uh, at that time, a hundred plus years ago, survived the Spanish flu. And three of the people who survived it in my family, three of my great aunts survived it on that dining room table. And so I'm sure at that time, because there were waves of Spanish flu, it, it, there was a first wave and the second wave, I believe there was a third wave. At that time, it felt like it would never end. And it ended. So please know that we are going to come out on the other side of this, that a vaccine will be developed, a treatment will be developed. We will figure this out. Scientists and researchers all over the world are working on this to the exclusion of basically all else because this is an all-hands-on-deck emergency. Some of the worst case predictions that I've read are this could go on for 12 months, 18 months, 24 months tops. And that seems like an eternity, I realize. But they're not talking about 24 months of social isolation. They're talking about people being tested, people figuring out who's already had it, who has immunity, gradually lifting these restrictions and allowing people to get out of the house again and gather in smaller groups again. So this current phase of social isolation, of physical distancing isn't going to go on forever. I know when you're in the middle of an emergency like this, it feels like it will never stop. And I look at my dining room table and I think about my great aunts and I think about my great grandparents. I think about my grandfather and I know that it stopped, that the Spanish flu stopped. So I'd encourage you to look around in your own life. Maybe there's something that you own or something that you can look to that just by the fact of its existence and your ability to cast your eyes on it or sit down at it offers you some reassurance. And as you've heard on the show today, all of those people out there who are isolating with their romantic partners, not always going great. Some of those people are going to be filing for divorce. More distressingly, some of those people are enduring abuse right now. Don't make that single person assumption that everybody out there who has a partner won some sort of lottery or is going to have that partner forever or even wants to be with that partner anymore. That is not always the case. And you don't have to wait for the physical distancing restrictions to be lifted to reach out and connect to people. Get on the dating apps. Get on Tinder and OkCupid and Bumble. Get on all the dating apps. People are meeting. People are having video chat dates and dressing up for them. I spoke with a woman on the CBC this week who had a six-hour long date with a man that she met online. You can connect with people virtually. Other people who are isolated and alone, they need that connection too. Reach out to them. Reach out to them now. Make yourself available. It's sort of you know, a flip on the advice we've turned over. You know, a lot of the advice I typically give is turned on its head. We had Tristan Taramino on the show to talk about how we're canceling polyamory and non-monogamy, except for the people that you live with, unless your partners live with you, you can't see them right now. That was crazy. One of the other standard bits of advice that we give us advice swingers is if you meet somebody on a dating app, don't have a huge conversation with them. Don't 
message with them for weeks or months before you meet in person. Establish mutual interest, meet in person to see if they look like their pictures, to see if you click physically, if there's that chemical sort of pull and attraction. You want to determine that right away because you don't want to make an outsized emotional investment in someone and then meet them and find out that they're not somebody that you want to be with, that there was a MAGA hat out of the frame of all of those photographs they took, for instance. But we are reversing course on that advice. Now reach out, connect, make an emotional investment if it helps you pass this time, if it helps you feel less distress, and then meet up in person and see how it goes. We will get through this. This will end. I feel you. I feel for you. My heart goes out to you. But believe me, this will end. I have the dining room table to prove it. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am going to be 32 next week, and I live in the Pacific Northwest and currently married, but my husband just told me like a few days ago he wants to get a divorce. So I'm still kind of like in the middle of the roller coaster of emotions right now, and I'm trying to get through that, but... That's not really why I'm calling. I'm calling because I was hoping to get your input on what you think is fair for me to ask for in this situation, given the current world circumstances and considering um, some details of my life, which are about a year ago, he gave me the, the go ahead to quit my job where I was making a really comfortable amount of money. And I decided to go back to school, follow my passion, try to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. So this past year, I've been working on jobs, trying to get experience and going back to school. And all the meanwhile, I've just been living off of my personal funds. My husband's been paying the mortgage and the utilities and the phone bill, but I've been paying for our a lot of our food and our trips and my car, you know, like all of my stuff and a little extra. So now that he wants to end things, it feels really unfair, especially given the fact that I don't have a full-time job right now and I barely make a thousand a month and I don't have a place to move and... Um, it feels like he wants me to just leave and he can go back to living life as if he never met me. So anyway, I'm really don't want to get lawyers involved, but I'm seeing now the fact that it's probably in my best interest because I don't want to be screwed over more than I feel like I already am. And, um, he's got a full-time job. He's, he's able to make over a hundred thousand dollars a year and work from home. And he has no problem paying his bills. And I don't even know what's in store for me in, in a month from now, you know? So anyway, I just wanted to get your perspective because I have talked to my friends and I know that they think that I should get an attorney, but I don't know, this is just a really shitty situation and I'd prefer not to get a divorce and work things out, but he's ready to call it quits. So anyway, any help you can give me is very appreciated. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Lori Guzzo, Seattle divorce lawyer and the practice group leader at Socius Law. Hey, Lori, how are you? I'm well, Dan. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, This woman's friends are telling her to get an attorney. I think she should get an attorney. You're an attorney. Do you think she should get an attorney? She definitely should see an attorney. And involving lawyers does not necessarily mean that it's going to get any more difficult. Um, But knowledge is power. And 
at this point, the most important thing she can do is accept her reality and become informed. Right. She needs to become informed about her rights and what she's entitled to. Her husband just can't ask her to disappear. Divorce isn't a magic word that makes your spouse go poof. He, he has obligations. He definitely does. Yeah. And what can, can you run us through? She says she's in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, let's assume Washington. Run us through what kind of uh, you know state we are. Are we a marital property state? Are we a duke it out in some other way state? What is she entitled to? Washington is one of um, the country's nine community property law states. Idaho is, Oregon isn't, and everyone should be very careful to remember that. Divorce varies by state law. Um, also, how state laws are applied practically can vary by county. Mm-hmm. So it's important to get information about what your specific state laws are and how your county applies them. And, and when you say community um, property state, what does that mean? And, and what is, uh, compared to what? What other kind of states are there? Well, these days, um, Oregon, for example, is called an equitable distribution state. and But in all three states... Some of the property that's been acquired, um, especially with the earnings of one spouse or another, would be available for distribution in, in, upon a divorce. Let's use Washington as an example. In Washington, anything acquired during the marriage um, by the earnings of either spouse is community property. Actually, the presumption is that anything acquired during the marriage is community property. And that means that means it gets split 50-50 if the, if the marriage ends. Um, that would be in California. In Washington, um, all community property and all separate property is before the court for a fair and equitable distribution. Mm. Um, Washington is, is unique that way. It's rare. For example, in California, community property would be divided equally and separate property cannot be awarded to the other spouse. In Washington, community property can be divided the way the court determines would be just and equitable and doesn't happen very often, but the separate property of one spouse can be awarded to the other to create a fair and equitable distribution. The caller mentioning that she's 32, um, her situation is likely not to involve a long-term marriage. And the length of the marriage is a very important consideration when it comes to what she's entitled to, Mm -hmm. not only in terms of the property distribution, but also spousal support. And I know she had a big concern regarding spousal support or what can be referred to as maintenance or alimony. Yeah, and it seems like the concern is rooted in the fact that she's only making, you know, roughly $1,000 a month right now. And then she says that her husband encouraged her to quit her job that really paid her bills uh, and, and pursue her passions. And sometime after encouraging her to do that, uh, he decided that he wanted to get out of this marriage. And she is in a very vulnerable position economically. And we're going through this pandemic and shelter in place right now. And just evaporating uh, isn't feasible economically for her. It isn't feasible because of the shelter in place orders here on the West coast. Uh, so yeah, but you know, it is feasible for her getting on the phone with a good attorney and the money that she says that she's been spending on food and trips. Uh, perhaps she can spend some of that money on the advice that she clearly needs at this moment. She needs to lawyer up. Absolutely. Dan. 
And sometimes people get into their heads when they lawyer up that that's the death knell. That's the end. And it, it usually is, but not always. You know, the, the conflict, I think, for this caller is that she'd rather not get divorced. She doesn't want to leave her husband or be left by her husband. But, you know, ending a relationship is the one aspect of a relationship that it's just straight up. Your consent doesn't matter. If somebody wants to leave you, they get mm-hmm. to leave you. If somebody wants to end a marriage, they can end the marriage without your buy-in or consent. Your consent in this instance, in this instance alone in a romantic relationship is irrelevant. Agreed. And there was nothing in the caller's message that suggested they're likely to reconcile. They may. We don't know. But even if they recon- reconcile, new clear understandings would need to be reached. And so the caller, you know, things are not going to be going back to what was days before or months before he told her that he wants a divorce. And the sooner that she gets advice about what she should do, the better. Um, It's important, you know, Dan, we're focusing on getting advice from a lawyer, and I do think that that's best. She should be very careful about how she gets legal advice, much like a person would not base medical treatment decisions on what you read on the internet or what your friend tells you her sister did without checking it out with your own physician. Um, a person going through a divorce should approach it as the way, you know, in the way that a reasonably prudent person would when faced with a serious but not life-threatening health condition. Meaning talk to your own lawyer, talk to your own doctor, maybe sometimes even get a second opinion. Absolutely. And if she finds, gets advice from a lawyer, she feels the lawyer's too aggressive or not her style. It's, it is worth it to continue on until you find somebody that you really feel comfortable with. The relationship has to be one where there's a lot of trust because it's an important journey, even if it's not going to go through contested litigation. You want to make sure that the lawyer you hire, um, or even the one that you're taking advice from is somebody who's aligned with your goals, you know, and, and one of those goals, unfortunately, can't be reconciliation if that's not <laughs> what's happening between this couple. Um, but she may need to talk, she may need to talk to a couple or three different lawyers before she lands on one that she feels really comfortable with. But our advice to her could basically be summed up as listen to your friends. Your friends are telling you what you need to do and what you need to hear. And now your sex advice columnist and uh, Lori Lopez, Seattle divorce lawyer, are telling you what you need to do, which is get a lawyer. Yes. And use your friends for the emotional support that you need right now. Take this extra time that everybody's suggesting we have now um, to plan for her future and to not be looking, thinking about the past and a future she's not going to have. Um, That's really not helpful or productive for her right now. She needs to approach this as the sort of business transaction that it's going to be while really taking care of herself emotionally, physically, psychologically. She should also be especially careful with her privacy at home, given that, you know, we're under these stay at home orders. Mm -hmm. Now is not a time for her to be forthcoming and transparent with her husband. So she shouldn't leave her notes around. She should be careful to close out internet searches. Don't leave her phone or other devices where he can get access to them. The trust shouldn't be there any longer, um, as sad as that may be for her to have to face. 
but it's her reality and her future after this is probably going to be brighter than she imagines. She says that he wants her to leave, would just like her to, to leave. And in addition to, to, to contacting a lawyer that can make it seem so final and it isn't what she, at least right now, wants. Uh, I would encourage her, based on what you just said, to think about leaving. If she is uh, not sick and she has been socially isolating with him, does she have friends who have been socially isolating? Can she change the place where she is isolating herself from the space she shares with her husband, her soon-to-be ex-husband, to a space that she can share with friends? Does somebody have a room that they can rent her in a house uh, where there's not too many people and everyone's been behaving responsibly and just shift your isolation space? It might be in your own best interest. Then you don't have to worry about leaving notes lying around. Then you can have conversations with your lawyer without worrying about them being overheard. You don't have to worry about your computer uh, being you know, swiped in the middle of the night and him reading your emails if he has your passwords or can figure them out. It might be better to give your husband what he wants, unfortunately, and what you don't want, caller, which is to get out. It's true. Also, um, even though the courts are largely closed right now, um, they are hearing emergency matters. And she um, is most likely, based on what she said on the call, I'm not giving legal advice, either generally or to the callers, you know, mm-hmm. but most likely she's she would qualify for some spousal support while any divorce action is pending. Um, whether or not she does pass the final decree would be dependent on facts and circumstances. We don't know. Um, But currently the courts are hearing emergency matters. One of which is a motion for support where a person's basic financial survival is an issue. So if she doesn't have a quarantine option with friends, she should speak to a lawyer about the possibility um, and likely outcome of support at an emergency hearing. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask, in cities that were locked down early, mostly in China, after the restrictions were eased, there was a huge surge in filings for divorce. People were expecting a baby boom with all these couples locked up together in their apartments, and what we're seeing is a divorce boom. Do you expect that here in the United States after our restrictions are eased? We do, and and we see signs of nothing even slowing down right now. And yes, we're expecting it. It may mean that divorces are more difficult to unwind because of people's financial circumstances. Mm. Um, But we are definitely looking forward to, um, not looking forward to, but we are definitely anticipating um, more filings and, uh, and don't see any slowdown already. There's been some talk about an increase in domestic violence during the shutdowns. Yeah, that, that came up earlier on the show today. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think that, Um, There's anything but anecdotal evidence. Experts are warning us not to, um, you know, to wait for the data. Mm -hmm. Um, But anecdotally, we certainly see more or hear of more. And we are hearing of more um, alleged domestic violence that does not turn out to be um, substantiated. And that, I think, is due to the nature of... um, of the emergency matters that the court will hear right now. For example, um, in order to get yourself into court and to get the relief you seek, one hook is an allegation of domestic violence. Yeah, unfortunately. We are all officially against false accusations of domestic violence. 
of course. As much as we as much as we are against if, <laughs> domestic violence. Yes, course. yes. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a sad fact. We will um, see how it plays out, and we will look for the data down the road about both those things, divorce filings and, tragically, domestic violence. You know, I want to separate out you know, people who have uh, abusive spouses and violent spouses who may be thinking about divorce. I encourage you to get a divorce if your partner is emotionally or physically violent, particularly if they're physically violent with you. Uh, but sometimes I think that people, you know, a lot of relationships work because you're not together all the time. And I think these circumstances are extreme. And I would encourage people, if it's just a matter of, you know, having to spend 24 hours a day with your partner is making you think you don't want to be with them anymore. It could be that the secret to your relationship success, not just with this person, but all future relationships is time apart, is not being forced to spend all day long with each other. I worry that some people are going to file for divorce because they've got it in their head somewhere that it will always be thus, that I can't stand this person 24 hours a day. Well, pretty soon you won't have to stand this person 24 hours a day again. And it may be a good and decent uh, relationship, even a good relationship. And if you're assessing it by what's being imposed on all of us right now and finding it lacking, maybe now is not the right time to decide to file for a divorce. Maybe once the restrictions are lifted, you don't have to spend 24 hours a day with each other anymore. You will rediscover what you liked about each other, what worked about your relationship, which in part was not having to be with this person all day long, every day for an indefinite amount of time. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that the pandemic is um, like many um, life-altering events where people um, can get some clarity about what's really important to them. And, you know, much like going back to normal, some of that may fade in time too. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage people not to make any hasty decisions. Lori Lopez Guzzo, Seattle divorce lawyer and the practice group leader at Socius Law Group. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. That was really helpful and very informative. Thank you, Dan and Nancy. Hey, Dan, Nancy and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a queer cis woman in my late 20s living in the Midwest. And I have a question about the pandemic and getting back together with your ex. So my question is this. Two months ago, my ex and I broke up. We were in a relationship for over a year and we were in couples counseling for probably two or three months before the end of everything. We were trying to figure out whether or not we were sustainable long-term because my emotional needs weren't being met in the relationship and I was really pushing hard to open it. He was really uncomfortable with this and it made him feel not special and not loved. So we parted ways over the issue of non-monogamy. Other than that, our relationship was amazing. We were deeply in love and we were even planning our lives together. We were planning on moving to California together. Now that the pandemic has hit, I just find myself absolutely racked with loneliness and a desire for physical touch and comfort and I know that I'm non-monogamous and I was seeing one other person, but for some reason I'm craving the touch of my ex. And I'm wondering if you think that that's because of the pandemic and because everybody is lacking in physical touch right now. If I miss my ex and this is just normal grief, or I'm wondering if... Because these are scary, unprecedented times, 
I'm wondering if it calls for scary, unprecedented actions, such as reaching out to your ex and asking them to rekindle things temporarily. I don't know. And if this were to happen, what do you think would be kind of a good game plan, a good a good structure to suggest? I'm scared to even reach out to him. I don't know what he would say. I'm kind of worried about coming off as a crazy person, but all I know is that I'm really craving a lot of just to be held and cuddled. So this relationship ended because you guys were sexually, emotionally incompatible. You wanted an open relationship. You required an open relationship. That's what you brought to couples counseling. And an open relationship made him feel not special, not loved. And so it ended and it sounded like you ended it. And it sounded like you were happy to be out of this relationship. You were dating other people. You were heading out there into the world to find partners who were on the same page with you emotionally and sexually, wanted the same things that you did. I imagine the end of this relationship was very painful for your ex. You guys were talking about a future, building a life together, and then you hit this wall. You had this irreconcilable difference around monogamy and relationships with other people. Projecting myself into his person, trying to feel what he might feel if he heard from you, I imagine that would be potentially very painful, particularly if this was a limited time offer just to get together with you and to hang out and provide you with touch and intimacy during this pandemic. And then when the pandemic's over, of course, this irreconcilable difference is still going to exist and you're going to give him his walking papers again. And if he didn't want the relationship to end, he might take you up on the offer, hoping that maybe this time it won't end. Maybe this time you'll feel differently about monogamy. Maybe after this time together, maybe after the pandemic, you will feel differently about monogamy. And if you know that's not true, if you know this is just a sort of temporary need, an itch that you would like someone familiar to scratch, it would be cruel of you to hold this out in front of him, to invite him back in conditionally in this way. Even if he said yes, it might still be cruel of you to do this. Often when people get dumped and they're carrying a torch for their ex, sometimes the ex wants to get back together just for the sex because the sex was great. And why shouldn't we keep having this awesome sex? Well, maybe you can have sex with your ex without your heart engaging. But if your ex was crushed when you dumped them, they might agree to the sex in hopes that Maybe it'll be more in the end. Maybe you'll change your mind. And if you know your mind is not going to change and you're only in it for the sex, you are exploiting that person in a way that's unfair and reflects badly on you as a person. So I would really encourage you to interrogate this, what it is you want, what it is you're offering. All that said, people do change their minds about monogamy. Most non-monogamous couples were monogamous couples once upon a time. Most people who are in non-monogamous relationships that make them very happy that they're glad to be in, that they don't want to get out of, had a negative reaction when non-monogamy was first floated as a proposal. Sometimes people need to sit with it and think about it and confront it. And often the only way to find out that you can be with someone and still feel special and still feel loved even though they have other people in their lives that they love, other people in their lives that are special to them, is after that's happened. Our fear of it and our anticipation of what it will mean 
Sometimes the only way to find out our fears were unfounded and what we anticipated isn't going to come to pass is to walk through the valley of the shadow of non-monogamy, which not everyone is willing to do the first time they're asked. Who knows? Maybe your boyfriend's come around. So I guess what I'm saying now is, yeah, maybe you could reach out to him, but only after you really interrogate what it is that you want from him, what it is that you're offering to him, and whether there's any possibility here that you could be exploiting him and setting him up for worse heartbreak down the road. If so, don't do that. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old white cis woman. I'm calling from the very, very, very northeast, currently quarantining with my parents, uh, which has actually gone pretty well so far. But my question for you today is about breakups during quarantine. I have been in a relationship with a very kind man for nine months. He is quarantining uh, with his parents and I'm with mine. And right now, my future is very up in the air. I might be staying home indefinitely to do a master's degree here instead of uh, in the city that we both live in. And what I realized over the past month of being with my parents is that I don't want to be with him anymore. I don't miss him. I don't turn to him when I'm feeling distraught. I don't miss his physical touch. I don't miss spending a lot of time with him. I'm reaching out to other people uh, for comfort at this time. And I'm by no means being inappropriate with my contacts and interactions with other people, specifically men. But I want to know what you think about breaking up with somebody over the phone or (laughs) via Zoom chat during this time, especially when they're still quarantining. Is that okay? Do I you know, potentially break a person's heart while they're alone? Is it selfish of me? And why am I doing it anyways? It's not like I'm going out on dates anytime soon. I would love to know your thoughts on this. I'm feeling really conflicted about the whole thing because I still do have a lot of love for him and I want to protect him. The pandemic has upended a lot of my previous go-to maxims, all my advice, polyamory, non-monogamy, canceled for the moment engaging with somebody that you've met on a dating app and having a, a million email exchanges before meeting up in person for that very first time. Yeah, that's okay now. I wouldn't have advised that in the past. But this bit of advice still stands. When you know you want out of a relationship, you should break up with that person as promptly as you possibly can. And I think that still applies during this pandemic. More difficult if you're sheltering in place with that person. You might have to wait for your own sanity, for their sanity. You want to be considerate. But if you're sheltering with your parents and he's sheltering with his parents and you know you want out of this relationship, as painful as it'll be to be dumped from afar, as painful as it'll be for him to be broken up with, it's always painful to be broken up with. But the reason I think you should go ahead and do it and the reason I tell people to be prompt is because you care about that person you're dumping on some level. You still care about them and you want the best for them. And who knows if you wait six months or a year to break up with someone during that time, they may have had an interaction with someone who could have been their next girlfriend if they had been single or knew that they were basically already single. And so while your boyfriend isn't out there in the world, potentially meeting people, there are the dating apps. People are getting on the dating apps. The person that might be his ideal life partner could be on a dating app right now. And he, if he knew he was single, could be on that dating app too. Or, you know, if he's sheltering in place with his parents, maybe 
next door, there's a woman who's sheltering in place with her parents and they've been chit-chatting across the fence from more than six feet away. And he felt a little spark, but of course snuffed it out because he is involved with someone. And so he can't make himself emotionally available to anyone else in that way. I just think when it comes to dumping a person, we should err on the side of promptness without cruelty. Right? We want, you know, if it's two days before someone's birthday, yeah, maybe wait a couple of weeks. If someone is finishing up their PhD, don't distract them in those last couple of months with a breakup. Be considerate, but be prompt. Just don't be cruel. And I think promptness and consideration requires you, if you know that you're going to end this relationship, to end it now. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Shayna Brassard tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I just finished listening to episode 703 of the Lovecast Magnum Edition, and it was, is my all-time favorite. So grateful for your vulnerable story and truth-telling these days. Thank you very much, Shayna, for that very sweet tweet. So graceful tweets. I want to thank You're Wrong About, Reply All, The Savage Lovecast, and Criminal Show for being my strongest coping mechanisms to date all these podcasts help. I'm going to pay that forward and give a shout out to some of the podcasts that are helping me stay sane right now. Like you, Graceful, I am a huge fan of your wrong about. I think I was their very first fan. Longtime listener to Slate's political gab fest. Love Dana Schwartz's Royal Blood. Fun history lessons about kings and queens. And I can't recommend Paul Cooper's Fall of Civilizations podcast enough. Somehow listening to stories about the collapse of other civilizations is helping to take my mind off the collapse of our own. Check all those podcasts out. And finally, Haley tweets, mom just asked for podcast recommendations. Hashtag Savage Lovecast is mom friendly, right? I like to think we're mom friendly and dom friendly. We work for everybody. Thank you all so much for your tweets. If you want me to read your tweet on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. This is for the guy in episode 703 with the new girlfriend of one month who he's quarantined with and she's hot and she's jealous. Dude, no, no, no. I totally agree with Dan's advice plus the fact that you've only been with her a month and you are an open-minded guy and you have already made a quote-unquote monogamous commitment and she is quote-unquote your girlfriend. I have to assume that those things are at her urging and that is another sign of control is to get someone to make too big of a commitment too soon. So no, 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 no. <laughs> Enjoy your quarantine and then run for the hills. Hi, I'm calling with regards to episode 703 about the woman who had a question about how to deal with razor burn after she's with somebody. I just want to say, Dan, you were spot on. I have a friend with benefits who I specifically tell him not to shave when we get together. And I love the razor burn on my chin. I wear it like a badge of fucking honor. Every time I feel it or see it, it reminds me of the great sex we had. So I, I agree with you, Dan. Keep it up. Hi, this is a, a comment for the woman in 703 who is super worried about whether she could become a lesbian. This is a totally different take, but um, as a person who has OCD, I immediately want to see if this woman would look into that for about herself because... What she's describing to me sounds like a specific subset of OCD. It's called HOCD, which literally stands for Homosexual Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. And um, the dictionary definition, if you Google it, it's categorized by intrusive thoughts revolving around one's sexual orientation. Um, and it's basically just an obsession over whether or not you could turn gay. And the reason I think this 
is because the way that she describes being into girl on girl porn and like wanting to get her pussy eaten, it doesn't sound like a, like someone who's actually gay. It sounds like she's just nervous. And maybe what's turning her on is the fact that it's forbidden. I don't know. It's just just something to think about. And also definitely dump your husband if he won't go down on you because that, that's bullshit. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, record your question on the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Speaking of those questions and calls, we are hoping in the next couple of weeks to do an entirely COVID-free Savage Lovecast. If you have a question that has nothing to do with the pandemic, give us a buzz. Ask that question. It will jump to the front of the line. If someone you love and that you are currently quarantining with is a fan of the Savage Lovecast, gift the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as much show, no ads, subscribe or gift a subscription at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Film Festival Hump is going to be streaming online from May 9th through June 12th. Screenings will be hosted by me, yours truly. We were crushed when we had to cancel our 15th annual Spring Hump Tour, but we got permission from the filmmakers to show their films online, and so the show can go on, and it can go on in your living room. I will be there to introduce the show live, and then we will take you straight to the dirty movies. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer, check out the lineup, and choose the date and time of screening that works for you, humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. A big thank you to Lori Lopez Guzzo. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. And I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Downloading. Stay safe.